Welcome to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. Have you ever wished you could go back and tell your younger self a way to do something better or something that you've learned or gosh, just those words of wisdom that you would have loved to have known when you first started. That's what this series is all about. I am interviewing guests and we reflect back on their words of wisdom and what they didn't learn in grad school. I think you'll be surprised by each one of these episodes. So sit back, listen, and enjoy. Welcome to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I am here with Ianessa Humbert. I am so excited you're here. Thank you for having me, Maddie. I'm very excited about being on this podcast with you. I'm excited to have you here because you are launching with me the very first series for what I didn't learn in grad school. And there are a number of times where when I'm talking with people or interviewing for podcasts, they'll say, what I didn't learn in grad school. And you have a lot to say about this topic, especially in the realm. (laughs) So thank you for coming. (laughs) You do. It's excellent. So before we get into some of those thoughts, though, we all have this common denominator of why we became speech pathologists. I would love to hear your story. Sure. So I am originally from Toronto, Canada, and my whole family is Jamaican. And when we immigrated to the United States, I was in high school. And because in Canada, it's a bilingual country, I took French from kindergarten till I left about grade nine, till I was about 14. And I continued through high school. I took AP French. And then I figured, let's just do what I know well, which is French. So I was a French major the first two years of undergrad. Um, And there is a stereotype about Jamaicans, which is true, (laughs) which is we have a lot of jobs. Jamaicans always have a lot of jobs. And they're always asking what this job is leading to. There, my parents would say, what is French leading to? What is the job at the end of that? We did not bring you to this country to find yourself. That is for white people. You need to find a job. That is a career. Um, get a career, not a job. Get a career, not a job. And I was like, gosh, I don't know what, what job I'm going to do. Can I just like enjoy French? So I asked my sister what job she thought or what major I should switch to. Now, I had already done two years in French for uh, uh, freshman and sophomore year. And I said, hey, Tamay, that's my sister's name. What, you know, our parents are crazy about careers. What should I do? And she goes, I don't know what you should do. I just know that if there's a job out there where you can correct people's speech for free, you need to do it because that's all you ever do anyway. I was like, really? Fine. So I go to the guidance counselor or whoever the career management person is. I was like, can I correct people's speech for money? Because I'm not doing it for free. (laughs) Um, and so they said, yeah, it's called speech pathology. And then so three degrees later, I'm still in this field, master's or oh, bachelor's, master's and PhD. Here I am. <laughs> there you are. And how did you niche down? Now, we know you. I, I initially began following you with your step program and your love of swallowing. How did you go down that trail? I went down that path because um, I knew for sure that I wanted to do something more in the medical adult realm. I didn't know what it would be. In fact, I wanted to be the um, SLP to the stars for vocalists. Like I wanted to like fix Mariah Carey or something like that. Um, And because I love the lyrics, like I was just kind of obsessed with it. And I was like, maybe I'll be an ENT. And my parents like, okay, that's too many jobs. Like, calm down, lady. You have a master's in SLP. (laughs) Breathe, right? So it's like, well, so I went to do, you know, my CFY in the school system. And I hated that. It was like the opposite of... Yeah. medical and adults. <laughs> so yep. then 
then I decided um, to go back and get a PhD right after my CFY. And they were like, you have to do something, you know, related to the medical area. And I was like, that's fine. I went to the NIH. I sent a bunch of emails to folks at the NIH because I was at Howard University in DC. And I was just like, somebody let me in a lab, somebody. And so they said, Christy Ludlow, who was the chair of the laryngeal speech section or the chief of the laryngeal speech section took me on and I did my PhD there and she needed somebody to focus on the swallowing projects. And I was like, use me. I don't care. Just put me in there. And of course I ended up completely falling in love with it because it was, it's fascinating because it's mechanistic. I got to work on adult neural stuff and I got to like trailblaze because there were so few things known and understood about the area. And it's so relevant to everything we do. And nobody's uninterested when you say, I study swallowing. No one goes, yeah, yeah. Tell me something interesting. <laughs> well, they say, well, I, I swallow my whole life. Yeah. Tell me something more. Right. Exactly. So yeah. You got your bachelor's, you got your master's. What was your PhD in? So it was in, so all the degrees are conferred and on my degree, it will say speech pathology, but my area of specialty was swallowing physiology. Specifically, I studied the effects of electrical stimulation on swallowing physiology. But then my postdoc was on swallowing neurophysiology. So how does the brain control swallowing? Interesting. And that's one of the things I'm teaching in one of my graduate uh, courses where it's actually the undergraduate course, but it's anatomy and physiology of speech and hearing mechanism. And that was one of the things I was listening to you with George Barnes the other night. And you were talking about why this was a missing piece that was not taught in grad school. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So I understand the path. It's an exciting path. You opened some neat doors. You had some opportunities, incredible opportunities. When often as a professor, I'll meet with students and they're like, I don't know what I want to do in grad school. Why do students say that? The reason people, uh, students say, I don't know what what I want to do in grad school Um, so I'm not exactly sure why they don't know what they don't, what they want. I don't know that they have to know what they want to do in grad school. Maybe they, they're thinking about grad school, the way they think about undergrad, where there's a major you specialize in, but it doesn't matter what they want to do. The tract in the program tells them they might not know what they want to specialize in afterward is that that might be what they mean, specialize in afterward, but they're going to do what courses are are required. Um, if they don't know how, what the question that I get, if you don't mind me um, telling you some things that I think I know after the years of being a professor is when I graduated, I had no clue what to do with a patient. Um, I heard that quite a bit, like they didn't know what to do. And I think the reason that they get that question, that they say that a lot is, especially in swallowing is because we have a problem in our field with theory and practice coming together. Um, right. Have people like me who understand the theory very well and have less clinical experience than somebody who graduated with little to no theoretical knowledge of swallowing who's been practicing, doing right. do, doing the do, right? Just going out there and doing the work. I liken it to a driver who doesn't understand the way a car works or a mechanic who's never driven. And somehow they're supposed to talk to each other and explain things. The mechanic knows everything about what's under the hood, but they don't have a feel for driving. Um, and then you have the person who's been driving forever. If something goes wrong, they're like, I don't even know what the steering wheel is from the tailpipe. And it, is- it would be nice if we had both. But in order to get to my level of expertise in swallowing physiology, you end up having to need to get a PhD. It shouldn't be that way. But that is the fact of the matter, because we have so many different things that we're supposed to understand 
who can be this level of expertise in stuttering, um, autism, and swallowing? Nobody can. And nobody should have to be. Um, So part of the issue is that we have too many things that we're expected to be generalists in. And then you go into a hospital and nobody gives a rat's ass about about, you know, uh, stuttering, (laughs) you know what I mean? Even that may have been the thing that you really excelled in and did well in. Right. And I see some of that in our programs around, um, just around the nation that some of them are, I'm getting a little off here. So we're going to stop. I'll just, um, so then when students come out of the grad, out of grad school and they've done their internships, and they're arriving at their very first day on that job through orientation and everything. And they first step into that room all by themselves, or maybe their supervisors on the way. What words of advice do you have for them to improve, maximize that classroom to clinic connection? How do they take those first few steps? Yeah, it's their job to avoid the fake it till you make it. That is the worst thing you can do because mm-hmm. Faking it means that you won't ask questions that are critical. If you fake it, it means you're not open about what you don't know. And if you have a supervisor who you're trying to impress with knowledge that you get by on and you don't know if it's right and they actually don't say, no, actually, this is what you should know, then you have a supervisor who doesn't know as well. And now you're really screwed. So that's a problem. That's one thing. The other thing is you have to make sure that you ask questions. You have every right to be skeptical. It is literally your supervisor's job to give you the why, to give you the background and to not be offended when you ask questions to for a rationale for the, 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 the things they're telling you to do. Unfortunately, the research in our field suffers from not finding out what's new and interesting. We suffer from chasing things that clinicians are already doing to see if there was ever any evidence to back it. Mm-hmm. So we can't assume that because somebody's been doing it for 20 years, this is one of the favorite things I like to say is, do your supervisors have 20 years of experience or do they have year one repeated 19 times? There is no evidence to suggest that people have 20 years of summation of gradually increasing um, knowledge on a topic and deepening knowledge. We know that they understand the system better. They get to know the healthcare system very well. It's why they kept their job. But it doesn't mean they understand anything about the physiology better. In fact, they often lose that. And students go to those settings and say, gosh, my I asked my professor a question based on this physiology we just learned. They had no clue what it was. And they even said, you don't need that here. So the third thing I'd say is, in addition to don't fake it till you make it, Two, be skeptical. Three, do not lose that basis, that phys- that theory, that physiology that you learned in school. You are literally the next generation to hold on to it. Every generation loses it. It's like it's like uh, flexible joints with age or something. They just lose it. So how do they keep it then? Well, the, it's their job to incorporate it into what they're doing. This is the work. This is the thing that drives me crazy. A lot of people will say, well, they didn't teach me how to do it. How did you learn everything else in your life that you're not getting paid for? You're dealing with someone's airway. It is literally your job, just like a physician's job, to make sure that he or she understands, keeps knowledge about the mechanism. I don't want my gynecologist to get um, genitalia confused in that they don't know what is male or female. They they have no clue what it is. Well, you know, I haven't been using it for a while. Are you kidding me? A baby's coming out of me right now. I need you to know this, ma'am or sir, right? Um, And so we can't be like, I've had people ask me what the difference is between the larynx and the pharynx. And these are practicing clinicians and raising their hand at meetings. And even if I said to a clinician, please differentiate 
the larynx and the pharynx. They couldn't give me a succinct yet thorough differentiation of the two in the way that you're supposed to be able to explain it to a professional group versus a lay person. You were supposed to be able to transition between professional level conversations within your specialty to medical professionals outside of your specialty and to the individual whose larynx and pharynx you're messing with. That's the level of um, nuance and expertise we're supposed to have. What does what would you recommend that a new speech pathologist do when he or she gets out into the field and they realize their supervisor doesn't have this experience? They're working on getting their own. They've got their clinical fellowship supervisor saying one thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read on a Facebook group one time their supervisor was having them clean ears. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She said my supervisor's telling me to clean somebody's ears. It sounded like she was sniff based and. The supervisor held some of the cards and she was reaching out. What do I do? What do you do when you don't, you know, you're working hard on developing and integrating and synthesizing and and all that you're supposed to be doing. You don't have, you need more resources. Well, the first thing to understand is let's understand why this is happening. It's happening because that supervisor doesn't know what their value is in that setting. So they do whatever somebody asks them to demonstrate that they're useful. Mm-hmm. The person is trying to keep their job. Now, the question is, do you want to be that person? No. The fact that you're asking on a Facebook group is an indication that you know something is amiss. Right. Take that, harness it. And you have to, this is where the badass SLP needs to just be. Uh, it's not a badge of honor that you suddenly get. It is something you grow into. That's not your natu- natu- um, natural disposition. You have to learn now to stand up for yourself. I said before that, I'm, I guess I didn't say these in this terms, but I'm a double immigrant in that my parents came to a country where I was born and I was raised like they were like, with their disposition, which is an immigrant. And then we all immigrated to the United States. Understanding that you're going to get duped by the natives is just a thing we know. If somebody tries to dupe you and you ask around, like, is that really the way it works in this country? And somebody goes, oh, no, they were just fooling with you. What do you do? You take that and you use it to build and say, oh, I understand the way the system works. There's a lot of people here who don't know what they're doing and they have more power than me because they belong here in a way that I don't and I'm new. How do I harness that by learning what they're after, understanding their currency, but also learning how to do what's best for me and for my patient? You owe it to your patients to not make it about you and keeping your job as opposed to making it about being the person in our profession that holds the light up to the dark finally. But you are shifting the way so many long-term SLPs think. You are shifting the way you're asking SLPs to step up in those settings and say, I'm just as valid as every other member on this medical team. And, and that is harder. I love the way that direction is going. And I love the way our profession is going. But sometimes it feels like we are the tag along in the therapy settings and stepping up into that knowledge can be a harder thing for a newer SLP to do. It's very true. But It's just the way that your parents dealt with things differently than you did. There was a generation before us that just couldn't get around sexism and racism quite the way that the new generation is expected to. What does the new generation do? They step up every every generation in a slightly better way. And it's hard, but they're not coming in with the the ingrained knowledge. And guess what? You're going to be that inflexible, brittle person one day. Get, get, Get there, learn how to flex yourself while you're still pliable. 
Don't wait until you're brittle and stuck in the system and then you can't move anymore. Right. And I am one of those who have been in the field for a long time. And when I, I was in a private practice for many years and then I shifted down to a big university hospital. I went for the interview and I'm like, you know, I've been in this a long time. How are they going to see me? And I started doing videos for them and I got accepted the job, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I had to pass a competency course and I was nervous about it. And at the same time, I had always been wondering, are my skills where they need to be? Am I doing what I need to be doing? Doing the continuing ed, passing the courses. Sometimes the continuing ed, you show up, you, you answer the questions and boom, you know, you make your, your, your units, um, continuing ed units, but really being open and saying, what do I need to learn and take it to that extra step and not faking it till you make it is, yeah. is good. And most of the continuing eds, one thing that people don't know is that it is the incentive is to get people to pass. If everyone right. fails, no one makes any money. And ASHA doesn't have quality standard requirements other than people complaining. So it is literally still your job to to ride your bike without the without the um, extra wheel. What they call those uh, the something wheels, training wheels, right? Angels, it is still your job to do that, even though there are general guide guidelines about how to be on a bike. You still have to balance yourself and always know that if somebody asks you the most basic question about the mechanism you're working on, which is break down the way a swallow works. And if you can't do that, no CEU course is going to give you that information. They're assuming you know it, but I mean, mind you, because I know what people don't know. And if you're embarrassed because you don't know something basic, take it upon yourself to self-study, mm. just like everything else. If you can't afford somebody to come in and do the tile for your, for your bathroom and you decide you're going to do it, you study the heck out of those DIY things. We all know how to watch HGTV and praise somebody for their turnaround, but you're not getting paid for that and you're not messing with somebody's neck. How much more is it for you to look beyond your self-preservation and actually work on what you don't know? And develop that degree of self-reflection um, yes. and say, this is what I know, this is what I don't know, and this is what I'm going to go learn. And then, because gosh, ages ago, um, you know, we when we when I first was doing video swallow studies, then I don't know if I should admit to all of this, but, you know, I was doing the, I went through, yep, we did the trials and here's what they did. I wasn't fully developing that crucial piece of how they changed their swallow or how we were able to improve their swallowing safety by introducing these different strategies or these different things. Such a crucial piece when you do those video swallow studies. I'm yeah. sure you can do it more eloquently, but yeah. Pushing yourself to do better. But you know why we're here. We're here for a couple of reasons. Um, the reason we're even having this conversation and that you can have a whole podcast with uh, with several people coming on answering this question for a year and you won't even get to 5% of what right. we did learn. The reason we're here is twofold. One is the way that our field has rolled things out um, in terms of new areas that are being brought into our area. It has been sort of like this um, random desperation of sort of grabbing. It's like that game Hungry Hungry Hippo where the hippo is just like grabbing all the little white balls it can get. <laughs> and then it makes sense of it later, except we have all different color balls and shapes. Like we have two, the Hungry Hippo has grabbed everything that the head and neck can do, except for areas that were already claimed, which is the eyes and the nose and the, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Right. And so what we have now is, 
is this problem where people grab things and they did it backwards when they grabbed it. They didn't do a grab where they say, let's really get some experts in our field and really build up curricula first. And then let's train people. And then let's put in our scope of practice. And after it's in our scope of practice, let's let people practice. It was the opposite. It was in swallowing, at least in the 70s, people were already doing swallowing because some physicians and SLPs and said, look, we have these patients with Parkinson's, ALS, stroke, et cetera. And they've got speech problems, yes, but they really can't swallow and there's no specialty to do this. You guys are already dealing with the structures involved in swallowing as part of speech. Is there something you can do? So SLPs just started doing it. Just like adolescents just start having sex. They just start putting things into things and they were like, how does this thing work? And then they said, hey, in order for us to have any clout and make any money, Asha, you have to put it in our scope of practice. So finally, Asha said in the 90s, well, let's put it in scope of practice. There is no expertise out there yet. It's not even our curriculum, but they were already doing it. So let's go ahead and give them condoms. All right. Now they're already doing it. There's some protection. It's in your scope of practice. But do we know what we're doing? Is there sex ed? Hmm, 2005 finally rolls around. Maybe we should tell programs to tell people how to do the do. I don't know. Thoughts, feelings, attitudes. And here we are all backwards. It's no wonder we have all of these issues going on. And when you have that hungry hippo grab, just whatever comes in because no one else has got it, then you get mad at OTs because they're doing it. It's like everybody's doing it, but nobody knows what they're doing. And the metaphor continues. <laughs> right. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent metaphor. I never, I never would have put those two, uh, two side by side, but I love it. Well, I um, swimming, so I've heard it all. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Well, I've walked into bars and, and said, Hey, I'm a swallowing specialist. And like, what? Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> yep. Have that too. Why do you think Ines said that our, our profession gets no respect? Well, there are a couple things. Um, one is that it's what you said about what we don't know is, is huge and no yes. one's willing to admit it. So it's the, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. The other one thing to remember is departments are filled with professors who, um, who decide what the, what the area of strength is going to be. We do everything from speech to language, to hearing, to swallowing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so on one faculty, people can't really have a good conversation about what the other person does. Do you think I know anything about the semicircular canals anymore? No, I got a decent grade on that test and I left it in the past. My balance works, my hearing's work, hearing works, I'm done, okay? Yet, I can't, so I can't have a functional conversation with one of my colleagues, nor can they talk to me about the molecular spaces, right? It's just a thing that right. happens. But we can talk about teacher load, et cetera. How well are we going to be propped up either in this healthcare setting or in our, our academic settings or even in study section at the NIH? Study section is where we where grants are reviewed. There's no way that in one field we can go from a hearing grant to a swallowing grant. But now let's think about a parallel area. When I talk to my colleagues who specialize in breathing or specialize in um, OT or PT, they might not be specializing maybe in pediatrics, but they understand locomotion top to bottom. They're not like, so wait, like feet, what are they? How are they different from kneecaps? The way we are different, we're asking the difference between a larynx and a pharynx. And when you're asking those questions and you aren't, don't, and you get mad when somebody says you should know this by now. Now, this is the cultural issues issue in our field. Nobody wants to be pointed out. If you even say it politely, the people are like, we shouldn't be attacking each other. Well, what should we be doing when somebody is out there probably hurting people 
Right. Uh, what, what should we be doing? How, how, how sweetly should I say? You're saying if I just say it sweetly, you'll actually do the work and understand a swallow now? Is that what you're telling me? Okay, well then, pretty please with sugar on top. Please do it. So we have a cultural issue where nobody wants to point the finger. And that could be, it could be. I mean, I did write a paper along with some other colleagues about um, gender issues in our field. And white women get penalized most in studies about um, not being nice and being liked and, and really prioritizing that over being right. It's more, what is this saying? It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Not in speech pathology, ladies. I'm sorry. I need you to be right. I need you to be spot on. And I need you to say, if somebody calls me a bitch and I was right and I helped that patient, well, maybe I'm not going to have the best friends, but I have earned respect for myself in my field. And that is probably the collision. Sorry? You've protected your patient. That's our... That's what we're here for. And that's the collision we're having, the cultural collision and the quality collision. Plus we have ASHA, which is so far, far from everything that we're doing. And I can say that, and I've been on ASHA committees, that I think the issue with ASHA is that they make decisions and they don't have a laboratory model of how to do it. They say they make a decision and all of Oz has to do it because the, the, um, you know, the Emerald City said go. Meanwhile, I would say, wouldn't it make better sense to say, if you're going to say everyone needs to have an AUD now, get a couple of test universities or placements where you say, let's test this model out and then say, "Mm -hmm, yep, everyone should do it. The reason swallowing is where it is because there aren't enough swallowing experts on the planet, much less in the 350 plus programs we have in our country, not even one at every university. There isn't one, there aren't 350 or 400 swallowing experts in the United States alone to go to to be a faculty at each and every one of these universities. So how the heck are these students supposed to get high quality knowledge? And that's why we created STEP. I was like, I gotta ferret myself out in some way. And that's because the makeup of every department is based on the faculty that they hire. The faculty that they hire are going to be people who they like, let's be honest, there's cronyism, Mm -hmm. people who are available and people who have grant money and people who say they can teach that area. That's Mm -hmm. it. There's no, what do they do? Go back, go back to your, your previous students to say, how well did she teach swallowing? Mm-hmm. Who, who, how are they judging value? Right. Right. Yeah. And there's one thing that I do want to be on the podcast okay with you. And that is the following the people who are left out the most. And this is one of the biggest, biggest gaps, chasms in our field is that think about who the stakeholders are in our field. You have your ASHA, your administrative level. You have your faculty. So ASHA is making their money. We pay our dues. Faculty, they make a salary. We get grants. We get prestige. Students, they get a degree at the end of the day, right? Who is left out? Clinical supervisors. They are literally the bottleneck between the academic setting and the eventual clinician, and they don't get paid. And yeah, some people are like, oh, I got my ASHA dues paid or they give me a little something. You know what other fields do? They have whole nurses and whole physicians whose job it is to deal with the residents. It is their job. They're not doing 500% productivity neurosurgeons and also telling this guy over there which part of the brain to pick at. Are you kidding me? They are fully integrated into the medical system. This is what speech pathologists have problems with. There is no academic or, you know, yeah, there are school nurses, but they're not the dominant nurses side of nursing or physicians. But there is in our field, we have the split between the, the um, school based and the medical. And somehow it's we know it's easier to infiltrate infiltrate schools as speech pathologists. That's where we started out. 
But to start infiltrating the medical system, this is a this is a this is like the Pentagon. It's like suddenly I decide I want to be, you know, general, a general, a four-star general, Ianessa Humber, go do it. Are you kidding me? That's impossible to just go and infiltrate the Pentagon right now. That's how it is when one lowly SLP comes in with no medical training and has to make decisions about the airway at the bedside without imaging because a physician needs the bed. What do you think is going to happen? A lot of tap dancing, a lot of probably crying in your car, (laughs) and unfortunately, zero respect. And that's because the clinical supervisor, that, that middle point, used to be that crying SLP. And is just figure out probably how to get on their feet and now has to take another child. It's like, you know, babies raising babies and we're wondering what's wrong with the next generation. Right. Right. Well said. Why do then we have troubles? Next question. Why do we have troubles finding those placements then? Because they're not getting paid. These people are not getting paid to do what they're doing. They're, they're being a nanny and a mom at the same time. Can you imagine if you were a nanny and the mom at the same time? And I know that there's a lot of people like, I don't think of myself as a nanny. Take the analogy and stop getting in your feelings. What I'm saying is, if you have a full-time job where you have to see patients, or let's say 20% is taken away from you so you can have a couple students, how well are you going to train those students? What you end up doing is saying, do what I do so you don't get in trouble. I have productivity to worry about. You don't have time to explain things. And half the time, to be true, the truth be told is they probably don't really understand what they're doing either because they were trained the same way. Right. They yeah, need to be paid. They need to be paid full-time jobs where they're actually on site at the clinical placement, not having to worry about productivity. And these need to be well-trained and well-paid people so that you, you know, you get what you pay for. And it needs to be recognized also at the university level. I know that's some- what I mean. Yeah, 100%. They need to be university employees that also have some kind of affiliation with the hospital or hospitals around just the way nursing and all other places do it. The schools of medicine, they don't hide, find some random guy out in the streets to say, hey, can you can you take care of our of our uh, students? They're, they're going to be delivering babies. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. Well, that clinical supervisor, I agree, is just crucial for the integration of those pieces. And when I supervise students, they will even ask the question, how do I lay out a template for an evaluation? How do I, how do I do these things that I need to do? Agreed. And then what is the, what is the solution that Asha comes with? You now need to have supervisory CEUs. What? That's going to fix it? No, pay these people. Find a, find a mechanism to pay these people. Me, what, since when has C, CEUs ever trained anybody in anything holistically? Do you know how many people are certified in every possible swallowing thing? Every swallowing thing out there. All yeah. the ones that cost thousands of dollars. And I say, hey, how does the U.S. open? And the tap dancing and tumbleweed I can hear from a mile away going from ear to ear is astounding. So I love your passion. I love your clarity. I love your badassedness. Um, where do we where do we go from here? Well, I can tell you what the field needs. In my opinion, the field needs a couple of things. One is it needs more SLPs like myself who are tired of complaining and tired of saying the same thing over and over again at their 400th workshop where they answer the four, the same question <laughs> over and over again. They need to ferret themselves out wisely. They need to build businesses. They need to build preferably online businesses where they educate, where they can impact the globe. And that's what I did without knowing that's what I was doing. I did it out of need and it ended up being amazing. And that's the Swallowing Training Education Portal, which stands for STEP, 
You can find it at stepcommunity.com. While I was a full-time mom, full-time wife, full-time professor with two R01s, those are large NIH grants and two large classes that I was training and going all around the world teaching, I realized, oh my God, I cannot answer these questions over and over again. I can't get to all the people who are asking me to give talks. So I decided with Rinki Varandani Desai, another SLP who I built out Dysphagia Grand Rounds with, we decided let's have one place, you know, it's like a swallowing Netflix or a clearinghouse with all of my talks and an actual curriculum or a module that people can go through. So they don't need to see me say it to them. And because I do virtually all of my graphics and I had so much content, we decided to have a high quality, low cost place for people to access this. We need more of that. To my knowledge, it was the first and only of such a module, a subscription-based place to get that kind of knowledge as opposed to you take one course or in a specialized area, at least. We need more people to do that. We need the people in voice and stuttering and child language and everybody else who's frustrated to build those kinds of platforms. We now are licensed out to several universities, which means many of the people who are teaching swallowing, who know down in their heart of hearts that they're not teaching it as well as they could, they can rely on my knowledge and my curriculum and my syllabi to help get them there. It helps students who find themselves on the job, like, what the heck do I do? How do I tell this medical professional what to do or what, what I don't do that I don't clean ears? <laughs> now, that one's not in step. <laughs> we don't have a whole course on not getting this room and out properly. But um, the point is that our field needs more creative minds. And it also means that when you see somebody doing something interesting and you know that you don't have any ideas or you just know there are problems, don't discourage them. There are so many SLPs who have amazing ideas, but they're so worried about what the field will say. Our field is filled with with less than create, just highly um, um, conventional thinking people who think about, oh, what will the neighbors think all the time? There are very few bold, independent individuals in both theory and what they think, as well as their practice. And those are the people who need to get out there and do the job. They need to go out there and have those ideas. And they, if people bash them, they need a few of us, uh, that little cohort of people like myself who will say, don't listen to them, keep pushing. Maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you've made some mistakes along the way, but keep pushing. There's a younger generation that's doing it more and they're realizing blaming Asha will only get us so far. Yes, let's blame them for the things that they're in charge of, but also make a way for people to do something different. Let people see you do that. And we need more creative people. And sometimes they're not the, the homogeneous group of people. Maybe they're not all the white females. Maybe they are the 8%. Maybe they are more males. Maybe we see things differently. And there are all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. And they need to be pushing. Excellent. Well, here's to more of that. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Maddie. It's great to be here. today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP. Continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.